0: Wrestling should be fun, should be fun, wrestling should be fun Wrestling should be fun, should be fun, wrestling should be fun G'day lads, welcome back to the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast, it's what the nerds are watching I am this week's host Don Philp on the mic, not too hard, not too soft, but just Right, we're coming to you free of charge just about every single week on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. Best way for you to support, of course, is to rate, review, subscribe. Why don't you give us a shout on your social media? We're over on the X. It's WSBFUN, all one word over there. Fucking shitloads of followers. Like... 18,000 or something. Well played, Ross. You also get us on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. Wrestling should be fun, all one word. Nowhere near 18,000 followers over there. But give us a shout anyway. Hey, why don't you give your mum a call or write a letter to your nan or why don't you act this out as a script of a play from a balcony in your local community. Any way you can get around us, we'll get around you. We are so excited here on the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast because we have a very, very special guest. We've never done anything like this one before. We have a published author on the show. And even more so, it is a book about wrestling. I am so excited to talk to our guest. It's a second generation wrestler who was around the UK for the boom of Britrest. Former singles tag team champion. It was old school violence. Oh, black. Jr. Mate, we're not calling you that tonight though, are we? It's accomplished author who's probably going to make me sound like an ignorant, blatant pedant. It's Wes Brown. Wes, how are you?
1: I'm good. I mean, it's been a while since I've had an intro like that. That's
0: You've got to roll out the red carpet for a world-renowned author like yourself, mate. It's, <laughs> mate. I can't tell you how good it is to have you here. we so happy to have you for a chat here on our little podcast on this corner of the internet. Mate, like, how do we find you these days? And I mean, what I mean by that is, like, what are you up to? Like, you're not, not in the industry anymore, and now you're writing books. Yeah. Tell us about what the story is now.
1: Well, I had a kind of weird background getting into wrestling anyway, because my dad was obviously a wrestler, and a lot of people yeah. thought that was kayfabe. They thought it was just some gimmick, because I wanted to sound cool like Zach Sabre Jr. or something like that. But, like, no, like... Oh, Black was a legit wrestler, you know, well, a legit pro wrestler. So that was always in the background. But from about the age of 15, 16, I wanted to be a writer and I became a published author at the age of 16. And then I was writing for some years after that. And I came to wrestling having kind of basically had a bit of a breakdown, really, and lost faith in writing. And it was a kind of gonzo experiment, like but there was somebody who was from a writing program I was working with who said, look, we'll pay you to go train as a wrestler if you write something about it. And I was so depressed. I was like, whatever, this guy's nuts. So I'll just go, sounds like a laugh. It's better than uh, just drinking yourself silly or whatever. So yeah, so I was a kind of writer before and then I became a wrestler again. And then I've I've reverted to being a writer. So I retired from wrestling five or six years ago and, and now I'm teaching creative writing in a university.
0: Mate, that's amazing. And the idea of writing the novel so you could train to be a wrestler or training to be a wrestler so you could write a novel and you've done both. Like you're a success. Like it, it's the sort of story that you feel like, oh, well, you know, you, the, maybe the publisher pays to put you through wrestling training and then you end up doing that forever. But you, you've made good on your promise and you've done both. Um, so the book that we're going to talk about, the novel we're going to talk about is called Breaking Cafe by Wes Brown, available online. Amazon is where I got it from. You can get it in all good bookstores. So, I want to get this completely right, whereas we're happy to say that it's a fictionalized account of your career. Pretty
1: much, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. If if you want to get all technical and literary about it, it's a work of auto fiction, it has its origins in French theory in the 1970s, and is it's a completely different philosophical perspective on life writing and truth claims about the self and the performance of the self and how identity is already a fiction and already kind of constructed and the the traditional claims of memoir to be an objective truth or to be impartial are kind of sort of a little bit naive in themselves. And the way we write about ourselves and think about ourselves and remember ourselves is partly fictionalized anyway. So there's a long kind of philosophical preamble about the boundaries between fiction and fact and presenting the self. But essentially, yeah, it's a novel that may not be a novel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of work shoot or maybe yeah. it's not work maybe it's just shoot you know yeah because it's all about kayfabe and the different layers of kayfabe i wanted a book that kind of one of the, my favorite things about pro wrestling is kayfabe and it's that thing of we all know it's fake right i'm, I'm sorry to break that to you but I, <laughs> <a fake. laughs>
0: we've been smartened up my, my dad wasn't in the industry but i, I got smartened up at a young age where don't uh, worry yeah
1: and and, and yeah. then that's kind of what makes it interesting and then what makes it even more interesting are those moments where you're not sure if it's real or fake or if elements of reality intrude on something or you know and it's those intrusions and that gossip and that wondering and and those moments that kind of feel real or that you've been tricked into feeling real yeah really you know rich
0: or you desperately want it to be real so badly that you can suspend you know that disbelief that that's well, I think like this and this is getting very philosophical about wrestling, but I think that those are my favorite times as a wrestling fan and I've been watching it for 30 years, but like the times that you forget just for that brief moment, you know, and it's never a case of, oh, that might have been real. I know it wasn't, but I just forgot for half an hour, and that's that's what I love. And a lot of times that was on shows that you are on, I mean, I, you know, having a couple of beers in the Electric Ballroom in Camden or uh, at the Dome in Tufnell Park—that's why I still love wrestling to this day. Is those moments that you can sort of just forget about what it really is. I mean, like, I, I love that theory about the memoir theory about everyone—the way they see their own life and the way they present their own life. When I was explaining to someone the other day, and this is just a, I think, a compliment to you as an author, but someone said to me, "Oh, what's it like? Is it a? Is it an autobiography?" Um, and I said, oh, you know, it's probably like Wordsworth's The Prelude. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's semi-autobiographical. I'm not sure if he actually saw a mountain start walking towards him. But uh, it's probably, you know, it's symbolic of what it would really be like to be in Britrest at that time. So I kind of, you already said that, like, the motivation came from someone offering to have you trained, But Let's go all the way back about like your wrestling fandom, mate. The old man is a wrestler. Like you must have had some amazing stories about like from your dad directly as a kid.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when when I was a kid as well, like my dad was enormous, and especially to a kid, he he, he was just big. He was just bigger than every man we ever yeah. knew, and he had this tattooed back, and and he was a beast. He was just a massive man, and we didn't have any of his tapes. We never saw him wrestle. He wrestled. He, he retired before. You know, I was born. So everything he told us was lore. It was folklore. It was it was legend. And he had yeah. these prep books of these really gnarly black and white photos. And they looked really brutal. You know, like one wrestler biting another and blood. And, you know, Abdullah the Butcher with yeah. like forks and stuff sticking out of his head and boots and all that kind of business. And he maintained that wrestling was real. Yeah. So I grew up thinking that my dad was, was this character. He was, he was like a superhero, you know? Yeah. And it, it became a kind of gender fable of like my picture of what a man was. That's yeah. I didn't realize he was kayfabing us. And even when we were watching like WWE and like, you know, there was a kind of distinction was, like, oh, but the stuff my dad did was real.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, like I, but the first time I watched wrestling, I was like, we got Sky. K, it was actually Bell Cable Media or something like that. It was summer of 96. It was red hot. And I was laying there on the bed with my dad and my mum was doing the ironing, and then like gold dusty comes out, being all gold dusty, wrestling Fabio Vega or something, and you know it was all stomping and all that. And my mum's just like, "This is fake, Frank. This is fake." And my dad was like, "No, it's not. You haven't been in the ring. You don't always like at ringside and see the sweat flying off the backs." And I'm like, "What? How?" It was like two different realities, and I'm like, "Well, who's right here? Like, what's going? And why would my dad lie?"
0: Yeah. It's funny you say that again, like I have no more connection to the industry other than talking to you right now as a fan. So I don't, I don't like to present that. I know too much or that, I'm, you know, smart Mark or anything like that, you know, but I, I remember when I was a kid, there was always like this myth. It's like an old wives tale that everyone in the schoolyard would say that, oh yeah, wrestling this, uh, that Jeff Hardy stuff, that's not real. But when, when my grandfather was a kid, it was real. You know, it used to be real, didn't it? it used, and that was like this wide stuff that went around because really it never was.
1: It in never the, was. No, it's, the, so like, weird. it's so weird. Yeah. I like my grandparents, my mum's parents were like that American stuff, shite, like uh yeah. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the British stuff that were real, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so
0: funny as well. Yeah, my my dad would say the same thing about like the old Australian stuff at Festival Hall in
1: Brisbane. Like your dad was an Aussie, right? Okay, fabe. K. Faye was he? Is that right? He lived in Sydney for a long time, and yeah. he, he learned to wrestle. He he was a merchant seaman, and he was um I don't know what you call it stationed or God knows whatever in in yeah, Wales, yeah. and he was training in one of the gyms there, and he started boxing. And back in the day, a boxer's license was a wrestler's license. Yeah, and he didn't like boxing. Like, he, he makes out like he was too big or what? I just think he was not that good, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was a big fella and he looked good. And he was, like, yeah. 19 or something like that. So they, they got him wrestling. And and he, he, he actually trained in New Zealand. I think under Hal Morgan, I'm not sure. And then yeah. he started out in Australia.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because I know the... Well, I think they both had pretty good scenes, like, in the industry. I think... The Australian scene was run by Jim Barnett, I think. He might have actually had both. He might have had the New Zealand scene as well. I'm not sure.
1: Territories as well, kind of working collegiately, so.
0: Yeah it, definitely, yeah, it definitely was. I think, like, the NWA Australia, like, they used to get, I think Andre used to tour there a lot. I mean, I don't, I don't just want to talk about your dad. This is a show about oh, you, like, but I'm just so interested. And it's because, you know... The novel is so much about masculinity and fatherhood, and the story develops to the character, the protagonist, having his own children, which, again, fictionalized account. But I guess the because one of the major themes is fatherhood, we have to talk about your dad a bit. But like, he must have had some stories about, like, did he
1: ever meet Andre, for example? Or did he work with Flair? Is that right? I'm not sure he worked. He worked with uh, Antonio Inoki. That's probably what I'm thinking of. Then- wow. My memory's terrible tonight. Um, once it gets past sort of uh, six o'clock, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm kind of done. But um, Harley Race, you know, uh, obviously the hearts and like, you know, yeah. some of the great and the good. And he actually used to ride with Harley Race. Yeah. At times, because Harley Race was too crazy. No one to drive with him.
0: He liked to drink Harley, did he? I think. Is that right? He,
1: he was just a maniac as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he was a really hard guy. He was a tough guy. And he was yeah. You know, and like my, my dad would drive around, and according to my dad as well, because you you can't, you, you're never quite sure if it's 100, percent but I've kind of verified this a little bit. They'd be driving through the desert or whatever. My dad would get out for a piss, drop his trousers, and Harley would shoot a hole for him just for fun. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's other story of like Harley Race threatening to burn down a, an arena if he didn't, and that's kind of probably true as well. Like, yeah, Harley Race was a total like, and a lot of the guys back then. And I, I had this sort of the folklore, real wrestling history of like the Martels and the Von Ericks and the Hearts. And my dad would tell these stories of these guys or like Angelo Mosca or like, you know, Gorilla Monsoon, these gigantic fellas. And he's got quite a a sort of literary imagination he's he's very exaggerated and the way he paints a story and tells a picture is just
0: yeah the way that you sort of write about your dad in the novel it sounds like he's an academic as well right like you you sort of grew up in an academic household but like there's great contrast of academia on the one hand and working class backdrop of Leeds. But then also, like, this crazy world of pro wrestling. It must have been some sort of mishmash in the household.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, my dad is an odd character. He's an eccentric. And he wasn't diagnosed with autism until he was 78. Wow. But back in the day, you know, what, in the 50s, whatever it was, he was the youngest of six children. Yeah. And after my granddad died, all the kids were sent out to either boarding school or some form of armed service, you know. Yeah the army or whatever and my dad was a lot younger so he just used to wander around the forests by himself that's this is wordsworth now (laughs) yeah and he he had a a pig in a wheelbarrow who was his pet and he just used to wheel this this pig around you know and he grew up kind of without a lot of social contact and like his older brother would make him fight travelers for money (laughs) no way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, people. Like, oh, I've got a brother. He'll fight you, and he'll fight your brother, and I'll put a tenner on it. You know, and heard yeah. him fighting travelers all the time. And but he, he's quite a gentle soul. And if life would have been different, or maybe if they'd have picked up on his neurodivergence sooner, he might have had a very different life. And he would have loved to have been a historian. Yeah he's taught himself Latin he, he loves reading about monarchs and different periods of history and in another world he, he'd probably be lecturing history
0: yeah oh mate that's that's amazing like what a story to grow up in that household I think like one of the favorite parts of the novel for me was as a youngster that the protagonist says that wrestling was everything I cared about and contained all the meaning in the world to me. And obviously the reason that I love that is because it spoke to me and it's that bit and the binge drinking of the character are the two bits that I really (laughs) related to, but more about that later. I think like maybe as an author, I think it's a funny thing. I always had trouble putting my finger on why I love this shit and like as a youngster, I've never heard it summed up. It contained all the meaning in the world to me. You were pro wrestling, right? You you were the wrestling kid at school. Is that right? Like, or, or high school or whatever it might
1: have been? Well, yeah, well, that's it. If your dad's a wrestler, that's who you are. That's yeah. your identity, whether you like it or not. And the other kids would go and tell them, you know, his dad's a wrestler. His dad's yeah. a wrestler, you know. And it was like your dad being He-Man or Captain Planet or a turtle, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. It was mad. It's like your, your dad was and what. And Bret Hart used to carry his bag back in Stampede when he was a young boy. It's like, yeah, you know, that's just really crazy. So I was the son of a wrestler, but also I didn't have his physical stature. No. Nah. So you you always live in his shadow. And yeah. people see my dad and he's a big man and he's a big character and he's got a big kind of history about him. And then I'm like, what are you? What are you all about?
0: <laughs> yeah. So did that sort of like push you in? Like were you... Were you a scrapper yourself? Like, you know, were, were people trying to test you out a lot as a youngster? Did you, uh, or is that, you know, you're more of a lover, not a fighter, Was What, the, you know?
1: Well, my dad was a pro wrestler and my mum was a lesbian, so there was a lot of people who wanted to have a go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine. So, you know, I was quite quite a good-natured kid on the whole. But people did try to sort of abuse that. And there was one time a guy came and he punched me in the kidney and it hurt so bad and I didn't do anything. And w- and it was just for shame, the cowardice of it. That yeah. I really needed to hit him back. And I just, I did the right thing. And then six months later, when he tried it again, he threw a straight jab at me and I, I slipped it and gave him a one-two, took him down and just beat him up. <laughs> and his mates tried to pile in and I, I pulled them down and beat them up as well until they all jumped on top of me and kicked the shit out of me.
0: Well, I think that sounds like you got a bit of mongrel in you, mate. I think it sounds like you'd have this.
1: And then nobody really bothered with me after that. So, So,
0: you know, sometimes the best way I think you can prove yourself as a tough guy is to take a kicking. Mate, fair play. I've never thrown a punch in my life, so I don't know anything about it. Like, (laughs) absolutely love that. So you sort of, you're growing up in this working class backdrop or the protagonist in the story is anyway. I, I assume that that's pretty much true to form.
1: Yeah, there are lots of coordinates that are the same.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned about how, like, you know, the f- the first dream is to be the, the writer. And, you know, you have accomplished both now. You know, you get a bit older. But it's almost like you felt like the way to get out of this working-class backdrop was almost creativity.
1: I always wanted to be something more than I was. I never felt I was enough. I always felt this internalised kind of um, maybe shame or, like, um just just feeling that I, I, I was inferior and yeah. I, I had to do more to prove myself than others. And, you know, even just having like a dinner card at school or like, we, we used to have these educational maintenance allowance things where you had to go, I used to call it my poverty slip. Yeah. Like go around at the end of the lesson, especially at A level where my school was a really mixed catchment area. But by the time it got to sixth form, they, they kind of weeded out a lot of working class kids. And it was kind of the sort of, the right on parents from the well-to-do Headingley area. And it was quite middle class, you know, quite decent, yeah. nice people and stuff, but they'd all have a fair bit of money. And I'd be there for the lesson with my poverty slip, feeling like Oliver Twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> please, can I have can I have some Dosh, please?
0: <laughs> I can see why. Like, I mean, that combined with, you know, this larger than life father, like it, you know, and, and also you probably as a youngster, like, a bit of a tortured artist in a way. Like I think everyone who's got that creative flair feels a little bit like that. That's, that's, it's part of the, um, not that I would know I'm a dumb cunt, but like part of like the plight of academia, right? That you sort of, you are almost clever enough to understand what you're missing out on maybe or something like that. Is it the
1: opposite of ignorance is bliss? Is that what I'm trying to say? It's a weird mix of these things of kind of feeling like an underdog kind of feeling that you're not good enough and that you need to prove yourself kind of wanting to get out of your dad's shadow a bit or like my dad also set an example where it's like, you can do that. His frontiers were kind of endless. It's like, you can just go around the world and be a wrestler and hang out with Harley race. And that yeah. was kind of the template. So I was kind of like, well, I want a bit of that, but I'm kind of at the bottom of the pile. Here. <laughs> yeah. And coupled with that is that there was this always this sense of, I don't know whether it was arrogance or hubris or whatever, but, I felt I could do something. I felt I had it in the tank. I don't know why. My dad was really encouraging as well. It might have come from him just putting belief in me. But I just, I just felt that there was, there was something I could do. But and, and again, it had to be creative. I, I was a creative, and, and the other part of it is, that I just, I, I was a massive weirdo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was, and I think you know, growing up, you realize that everybody kind of feels like that to an extent. But I was just socially awkward and bizarre, yeah, by and large, yeah. and. There was who I was, and there was who I wanted to be. Yeah, And I found, like, interact and maybe try and talk to girls or or be cool or whatever. And I was just a fucking weirdo. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But, like, you you are right. We, every single person in the world feels like that as well, I'm sure, to some extent, especially those of us in the wrestling fan community.
1: Well, I, f- I think we've found it. The... <laughs> yeah. we found our uh, stable there with... Uh... Right.
0: Yeah, I I, um, happily de facto relationship now living in sin myself uh, with my partner Holly. But when I was on the dating scene, you know, you'd always wait a little while. Like I remember sometimes, you know, the question would come up on the dating apps or something like that. It's like, oh, you know, what are you up to today, Sunday afternoon? And I was was probably going to watch you wrestle, mate. But then I was like, oh, I'm just going to a show. Oh, what type of show? Oh, it's just like, you know, like live performance, local sort of stuff. You know, it'd take a while before you'd mention the W word, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's mad, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of people are like, what's, what's all that about?
0: Yeah, yeah. Right, and uh, you know what? I think, like... I'm just sort of thinking out loud here now on the, on the fly, but I, I think the UK is so much more accepting of, like, kind of, uh, I don't know the exact word for it. Like I kind of think, like, even camp pursuits in a way or, like, the UK, they love the darts, right, or the, the snooker and the wrestling. These are, like, really UK things. Like, no one, whereas, like, where I'm from, it's like, nah, like this real masculine way of looking. Darts, that's not a real sport. Wrestling, what are you talking about? You know, that... That real Aussie macho, you know, never show any emotion. You can't like things, but I think one thing the UK does do well it's like, ah, we like what we like.
1: Yeah, and like British sports are very British, you know. But the yeah. pub games, really.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The pub games and variety acts, <laughs> you know, and, and and that's what wrestling is.
0: Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it transfers everything. Bake off wouldn't work anywhere else. Pantos aren't really a thing in many other
1: countries. I think you got panto, you've got that body humor. You've got that kind of irony and not taking things too seriously. Yeah, yeah it's a very British kind of sensibility.
0: Yeah, mate. So like we're sort of moving along now to your like entry into the wrestling business and the protagonist of the novel's entry into the wrestling business. So the protagonist goes and trains and they essentially come across what I would say is the villain of the of the story, a character called uh, Marilyn Draven. And this character, he really gives like the character a really tough time. And I guess I just really wanted to ask about like your time training as a wrestler. Like, did you find it difficult as the son of a, you know, great wrestler? And did you, did you cop a bit of stick? How tough was it?
1: I didn't want to tell anybody, but my dad was a wrestler to begin with. I just wanted to do it on my own terms. And like, I I didn't want to be known as Old Black Jr. or anything like that. I I wanted to kind of go my own way and, and do my own thing. And like, there are deviations in the novel where, I do do some things. I, I don't want to give it all away because I want that line where people are like, is it, did that happen? Is that real? Is that, yeah. Cause I, I could still be in it. You know, I could, yeah. it could all be real. It could all not be real. You, you just don't know. But yeah, there, there, there are definitely bits of it that I've embellished a little bit or made to seem a little bit more arduous. It's a bit more like SAS, that channel four SAS program. Because yeah. there, there were elements of that, but it wasn't really like that for the most part, but no, you know, it makes for a better story. Yeah. But, yeah, of course. A, a grain of truth and all that kind of stuff. And like with Marilyn Draven, I wanted to kind of put together some of the more toxic elements of pro wrestling into a single entity who was quite complicated. He's not a wholly bad guy. He does do bad stuff. He's he's pretty messed up. You know, he's he's complicated. Yeah. And I was also kind of weirdly channeling a bit of Marilyn Manson in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then I assume, am I right in thinking that Draven, the character, is that from The Crow? Is that right? I think,
1: yeah, there was some wrestler called Draven who was RCWA, yeah. but I, I kind of nicked that name a little bit because it sounded cool. <laughs> so it's not yeah. related to him. But yeah, yeah, I think he probably got it from The Crow as well, Stairway to Heaven or whatever. Yeah, just because. And, and originally, I had him down as Marilyn Kilmister, yeah <laughs> let me kill mister and my wife was like you can't call him kill mister that name's shit <laughs> <laughs> like, why, why don't you call him marilyn draven and i was yeah. like oh okay that sounds all right yeah that's part of the fun of the
0: novel for me was like and like you said you could still be K-faving me 100 percent, and all of us and i think that would be the greatest trick of all but sort of trying to think about, well, you know, how much of this really happened. And like we said, I I was there for a lot of it and trying to see, well, do I recognise this story? You know, could this particular character, like yourself, for example, be based on someone that I might have even seen in the building? And some of the names of the characters are absolutely brilliant. It really was something that stood out to me. It was almost, um, you know, Dickens-esque in that way, you know, that because that's the thing about wrestling, right? Character names reflect personality, and that's a cool thing about your novel. It's true to that, I think. So break down the, the character a little bit again, and this is essentially me asking you how close your personality is to the character, but you've already mentioned that uh, yourself and the character both like to drink, maybe too much so. Like, I guess maybe you'd say even the character's flaw is Addiction, is that right? And Yeah, I guess I wanted to ask, did you have a struggle?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this book is a weird hybrid of different genres. Yeah. Because, like, you know, especially when you're submitting to agents and publishers and stuff, they tell you to never say this book's completely original, there's no other book like it. Yeah. But in some ways, it's like it is a kind of weird mix of stuff. There's not really that many literary, auto-fictional, working-class, northern alcohol memoirs about pro wrestling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah kind of it's a, it's a weird so it, at it's root in a weird way it's a kind of addiction memoir
0: yeah yeah no i and i i completely got that as well there's a beautiful line and i don't know if i've ever heard sort of my own relationship with food and alcohols summarized so beautifully as uh, you're on a first date. or oh, the character was on a first date and uh the character says i ordered a butterfly chicken and eight beers <laughs> and I was, and I was just like, "Mate, I fucking hear that." Yeah. Yeah. Is it at any point you say, "No, nah, I want to keep the magic a little bit," but the character goes through this battle with the addiction and seems to get a bit of a handle on it later on in the story? Is that you know Wes Brown? Or
1: yeah, yeah, I'm I'm five years clean. Well, yeah, five years sober now, yeah. and, and and that that was a big deal for me, you know. The, the, there are some things where you say, you know how similar is the character to me or not? It's like it is a self portrait,
0: yeah, of course,
1: but it's like you can make a self portrait quite flattering, or you can make one like a Francis Bacon. It's all warped and weird, you know yeah. you you can do self portraiture in a diff so there were some things I did where I took them out because I didn't want them to look too flattering, yeah, I have some really cool stories in there that make me look like a cool guy. And I was like, I can't have that. I I, I don't want to, but I, I don't want to make it too miserable and be like, oh, look, you know, look how sorry for myself I am because I'm not. But,
0: yeah.
1: But and also because there are some real character, I wanted to blur the real and the, and the, you know, the fictional as well. So there are some real characters in there. And yeah. there are characters based around, you know, obviously my dad's, the only real characters who have the real names are me, my dad, my housemate, and one or two other people. And then there are some other people who are kind of, avatars of of existing people like in my family and stuff you know one way or another I felt a moral duty to be harder on myself and more in forgiving on myself and not those other people yeah and and some of the the addiction stuff was in it because fundamentally it comes down to like identity and feeling authentic and I never really felt authentic one way or another and then even when I became a wrestler it it was a mask that gave me extraordinary powers until it started to, to the face as well and even as a wrestler, I had imposter syndrome really bad,
0: yeah, 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 well, let's talk about that like you uh, the, like the character really suffers with like really bad nerves before most of their matches, but what do, what't you tell us like your your first match, not not the novel now, like what are your memories of like is that something that you suffered with?
1: Oh, yeah, before pretty much every match, I'd be dry heaving, I'd be retching, I wouldn't really be able to eat. I was I was a mess. I was a total, total mess. And it's partly because going into wrestling, I'd had a total breakdown where I was trying to be this author and I wanted to be like a contrarian intellectual and I wanted to say the unsayable and I wanted to be like this bad boy of English letters. But when my novel came out, it wasn't really produced that well. It wasn't what I wanted. It was just with a tiny, tiny press and I bottled it. And then I got into one or two weird... I, I had a succession of personal traumas happen one after the other. And I was just reeling. I just couldn't. Yeah. And one of the things I'm interested in is narrative psychology. And a big basis of neuroscience and psychology these days is that a big part of our efficacy of how we are as a person, how how we how well we can focus on life and have lead a meaningful life is what kind of narrative we have about our lives and ourselves. But that we shape our self in, into a story that gives yeah. us money so if you're, you're like you know a bit of a prone to depression you might always think of yourself as hard done by and you might always look at events and go here's where i failed and and you create a story that's quite negative but that's a kind of kayfabe as well all stories are partial and edited you know they can tell truths but they don't always tell the whole truth so that narrative identity i had that kayfabe persona of wes the author was just broken so yeah. they wrestling. And I, I just pretended to be somebody else for a while. I, yeah. I created another persona. And what I found in wrestling was lots of people with low self-esteem who were misfits, who would kind of basically ran away to the circus and yeah. found some sort of meaning in dressing up as other people and pretending to be superheroes.
0: Yeah. Mate, what a brilliant way of looking at it. And, like, was it as sort of as scarily masculine as, as what it seems and what it sounds like, or was, you know, life with your old man growing up, you know, the perfect preparation for going into it? Uh, we, we're talking, uh, what, our 2010s sort of era, that
1: that yeah. decade. It's sort of odd because, like, my dad's not a very, he, he's very masculine, but he's not a very kind of macho guy. And he doesn't really have, you know, many acquaintances and he doesn't hang out with the boys. And, you know, he he's kind of an eccentric doing his own thing and he's quite a gentle soul really and, and likes talking about poetry and history and stuff like that so yeah um the world of pro wrestling I didn't find too macho but then I'm in the world of MMA and I was in the world of powerlifting and I didn't find those too macho either so I, I reckon I'm just kind of I'm probably more masculine and blokey yeah. than I realize, because I'm like this is kind of normal
0: in a way isn't it what you wanted that might be too much of a jump for me like you even as an author, like you said, you wanted to be the bad boy of English letters. Like you were looking for a way to express this masculinity, right? That kind of you didn't have an outlet for Is is that right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I still don't fully understand it. But yeah, it was needing to go out and express something artistically to prove who you are. And it yeah. can only yeah. be done through performance, through art. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing of like, you're not a wrestler. If you're training to be a wrestler, you're not a wrestler yeah if you are booked on the show you're not a wrestler if it's five minutes before bell time you're not a wrestler as soon as you go out and step on the canvas and make art you're a wrestler so yeah. performance constitutes that new identity in and out of the ring so you you leave there and it's like a ritual where you, you've become somebody else you know you, you've crossed a threshold and walking through that door for my debut match was crossing a threshold into this new identity but also into a living part of that folklore that I'd grown up with and that had shaped me. And even though it was, you know, kayfabe and imaginary and so on, it had like a shaping effect on who I was. It was this yeah. kind of subterranean world of dreams and masculine kind of legends and stories. But the mythic realm of men, Bruce Springsteen calls it. Yeah. And then I was part of it. Yeah, yeah. And then in the writing of a story, that's another kind of performance. Where in the writing of it, and then the publication of it, I then constitute a new identity where I become a writer, and it's these weird kind of performance acts. It's like, like you know, as humans, we need these rituals, and wrestling's based around ritual and symbol and stuff like this. But you don't get married and just go, "Do you want to get married?" And you go, "Yeah, okay, we're married now." You need to do a public event where you wear costumes, where <laughs> yeah, all this cafe stuff going on for these ceremonies and rituals, and you do a speech act. You say I do in front of an audience, and it's it's that act, that performance, that then constitutes for marriage,
0: and the nerves that go with it as well. Like like yeah. it's a performance and everything. Yeah, I, I've not been married myself as of yet, but that's that's a brilliant, brilliant idea. So like, I, I guess then you can draw links pretty easily between creative writing, being able to structure a story, and performing in a match, structuring a story. I mean, I know that might be a bit glib. Like, I'm not trying to compare writing a... How many words is your novel? About 80,000. Yeah, I'm not trying to compare an 80,000 beautifully written novel with chapters and flow points to, you know, the five-step structure of a wrestling match. But could, in a way, in a weird way, was it the artistic outlet that you were looking for?
1: It was, yeah. And when I was a wrestler, it was like I couldn't myself... I couldn't contain these two identities simultaneously. I couldn't be a wrestler and a writer, so I kind of like subsumed the writer and all of that creative stuff that I needed to do was being satisfied as a wrestler. And the elements of narrative are really similar. Being a wrestler made me a better writer.
0: That's and what I want to do here. Yeah, it's I love really
1: that. Really efficient at telling stories, and it, it is—it's storytelling in its essence. And that people think, you know, some novelists can be quite sloppy as well and just kind of meander and all this kind of stuff. But we need to know who the good guy is. We need to know who the bad guy is. We need to know why we should cheer for this guy. We need to know why we should care about him. Yeah. So the novel, I don't know if you noticed, is actually roughly structured like a pro wrestling match.
0: Yeah, well, I think. I hadn't quite drawn the link until I think there was a part of the novel where the character even references it. Like it, it almost, I'm not sure if the right word is meta, but it becomes a little bit meta yeah. where, yeah, you, you're almost talking about writing the story from the guise of wrestling. And then it did click for me a little bit, like the idea of the heat and then the comeback yeah. you know the, the the shine as well. I, I I sort of drew the links, but then again, like, I'm just a wrestling fan, so I don't claim to know everything about behind the scenes, you know,
1: but yeah, for the opening, the idea is to shine up a baby face, yeah, to make you think he's a protagonist worth investing in, and but he has your sympathy. And then we have the heat, and then we have a big heat, and we, we we flirt with him turning heel oh, he great right. he returns to face and makes a big comeback and goes home. Yeah
0: there yeah you're gonna have to read it if you want to get the reference points but there are a couple of times when I genuinely was worried about the character and I think for me as well the the jeopardy was even more real because I was kind of there for some of the stuff from a wrestling perspective so I was like oh no don't do that mate please so yeah there was definitely that jeopardy there for me as I was reading oh mate that's brilliant you're in the wrestling career now and it, it's not a long career but i think that uh cage match had you down as about 66 matches in in the few years that you're involved with brit rest but you're involved with a boom of brit rest it must have felt like you know you got in while well, the getting was good
1: it was crazy because you know just before i got in it was that period of Travelling four hours to wrestle in front of 15 people in some squash court somewhere, you know, like, and then things started happening and there was this irresistible momentum and it just, and Brit rest was the centre of the world and the cards were stacked and the talent was insane and there were so many shows and, and it was, it was just amazing. And then, you know, things turned sour in a number of ways, but like, I, I didn't wrestle for very long at all. No. Nah. You know, there was the kind of first year where I was training, where I was unbuckable. I couldn't get booked anywhere. And then there was another year that was a bit of a breakthrough year. And I was a kind of comedy heel for a little bit. And then there was another year or two where I was kind of, I did the old school violence phase. And kind of really seized the day a little bit. And I did the kind of stuff I wanted to do in wrestling. And then I was kind of like, I'm I'm done. You know, yeah. not many people leave quit when they're ahead, you know, in wrestling. You, you, you either don't take off or you stay too long or, or you just stay around forever. But like I found it so difficult in the end. And that I'd kind of found myself. I found who I wanted to be. I found the kind of masculinity that I wanted. Yeah. And the wrestling was like a drug. It was a, it was another drug and it it was a powerful drug. And but again after a while you start to feel it corrodes you. You get too immersed in the character you get too immersed in that business you get too immersed in all this crazy kayfabe bullshit of the of the hierarchy and and all that kind of stuff and yeah i was just like it's it's time i've built myself up again i'm i'm ready to go this other way so it was kind of like the first way of being a writer failed the second way of being a wrestler kind of it was okay but you know i don't know it failed as such but I, i kind of reached my limit And then there was this synthesis of like, I'm going to take what I've gained from those two paths into this new sober me. And the sober me has to confront a load of stuff and actually deal with it and break kayfabe, not live by bullshitting yourself anymore. Not our little fantasies, not live our little ideas of who we think we are or what we're actually like and, and confront those things.
0: It's such a brilliant way of putting it. I kind of wanted to finish with this, but I'm sort of going to shift it around a little bit. Like one thing I loved about the narrative was that us as wrestling fans, I think we have this idealised opinion of the industry. We imagine that it's, I don't know, it's like Disneyland out the back. But really the cool thing about your narrative, it reminded me of like Beyond the Mat or something where it was like, nah, this industry kind of sucks. (laughs) Like it, it and it just, it seemed to me that even though like, a part of you loved it, I'm not sure if you ever really liked it.
1: The love I had for wrestling, especially as a kid. And, and it's a kind of love that I love, you know, for your social media presence and stuff. All the kind of goofy, fun stuff that wrestling is, you know. I, I just loved it so much. It was so pure. Yeah. And then when you get into it and you get the other side know this is just me as well, because I, I had imposter syndrome quite bad and I was quite a good wrestler, but I wasn't that good. I, and my main issue was my memory's terrible. And when my dad wrestled, it was all on the fly. and yeah. I'm, I'm a big believer in wrestling on the fly. I really like it. It gives it a free sun, it gives it a spontaneity. And then everything's so kind of highly choreographed now. I just couldn't remember everybody's stuff. It was like, I'd I'd, I'd rock up at an event, especially if it was someone more senior than me. And they'd be like, right, we're doing Bob Bob, you get in the corner, Bosh, bam, you do that. Bam, 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 bam. And I'd be like, and you'd be like, you got it? And you're like, yeah, yeah. And they walk off and you're like, I don't, I don't have it. I don't, I just don't have the match. I just, and the pressure on it was just, and then you go and have the match and then there'd be people on podcasts and there'd be people reviewing you. And there'd be fans and there'd be promoters and there'd be other wrestlers who want your spot in the card. And there's just this horrendous pressure all the time. And I was always kind of like, I just, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not that good. I'm not that good. And I just, there's a bit of me that thought it was, thought it was quite good, but then it was all that remembering too. And I don't know if you watch for Boys
0: Um, I don't, I don't, I know what it is. I'm aware
1: of it. It's a bit like that where you become a superhero and you're like, cool, I'm a superhero, but you kind of realize they're all just people and on the other side, they're not the gods in Olympus, but even the gods in Olympus are kind of bickering and gossiping all the time and have human failings. And so maybe they are like the gods on Olympus, you know, and, and it was that kind of thing. And at that level, I didn't feel comfortable you know, and I was kind of like, I want to try and have some strong style matches because I was obsessed with strong style and it goes a bit to what you were saying about as, as a kid, did you want to fight people? Do you, I always had, like I'm not bothered now, I'm just like wrestling's art, it's just a show, you know, it's fine. But back then, it used to get my back up a little bit. If people didn't think that they were real or they were real men or that it was like, don't you know this hurts? Or don't you know that there's there's something to this that's more meaningful, you know? And but I, I feel like some of that, is internalized into my like love of like Chris Benoit's matches and stuff like that. Because you go, well, look at his stuff and go, tell him that looks fake. But even so, even if I watch a Chris Benoit match now, you know, you yeah. know, he's obviously problematic for yeah.
0: Asterix. Asterix. Yeah. asterix. <laughs> so, we, we, we're allowed to separate yeah. the art from the well, artist but, in a way.
1: In ring, that intensity still just whoa! It's, that's real. That that gets me going. It's so exciting watching that. But over time, I've come to appreciate more what wrestling is rather than what it isn't. And like somebody like the Undertaker, for me, when that dong hits, it, it sent well. It doesn't ring to do it anymore, but when it did, it used to send shivers down my spine. It's the perfect blend of theatricality, character, and brilliant in-ring work as well. You know. Yeah, I sometimes wonder
0: about the Undertaker. How much did he know that he? just somehow like not fell into obviously he's an extremely talented man and amazing and the legend of the industry like the legend of the industry but i wonder how much he knew going along that that was going to be like this amazing 30-year journey for him where he was going to go from being mean mark to being the greatest wrestler ever
1: it's crazy because nobody thought much of him originally yeah no and then he had that weird chicken egg gimmick
0: yeah at the Survivor Series thing, right? Is that what you mean? The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the yeah. gobbledygooker yeah. thing,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when he started out, his in-ring work was okay. But the, but the great thing about him is he just develops into this stellar work, and as a big man as well, with that gimmick, you know, he could have just phoned it in and just done the same thing over and over again, but he didn't. Like, his in-ring work got so good.
0: I think I sort of read or I heard that like he always wanted to be more athletic, but the, the gimmick in the early days, like the actual dead man didn't allow it. So, you know, as the wrestling industry developed and he could be like, you know, a little bit more of himself, I think that he relished the opportunity to show his athleticism because like, oh, that made the size of him. And to, to move like that, he, he certainly had a few genes that I, that I don't, that's for sure.
1: Well, that's the thing. He went from no selling to being like the best seller in the business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just amazing. Can't say enough good things. And I mean, we could talk about a million wrestlers, like, but it is sort of a, it's a really good symbol of the entire industry, isn't he? You know, I wanted to ask about like your dad watching you uh, wrestle. Did that happen in real life?
1: Yeah. And every time he watched me, I had a total stinker. <laughs> and then there was where I finally got him down. And I had a barnstormer, you know, I was like, fucking, where is he? Where is he? Like afterwards I was just, oh, just beaming, you know, I felt like I'd just taken shots of adrenaline and Coke and I was just on one. And I was like, where is he? And I went to the bar and he's, and I'm like, did you see it? And he's like, no, I just got here. And I was like, "Ah." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way that's a better story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did see them on tape and all that kind of stuff, but like, he, he was sort of proud, but like, I think, He just didn't like the levels of choreography of today's wrestling. But then there is a weird thing as well is, you know, if talk about realism and stuff, all these old boys, and in some ways it was, but if you watch a match from the 70s as well, some of their punches look really wafty.
0: Yeah. I mean, like the the athleticism now, there's no two ways around it. It's night and day to what it was back in the past. So you, You can talk about realism all you like, but the fact of the matter is that these guys are professional athletes now. Uh, you know, as good as Earthquake was, I'm not sure he's making it now. Yeah, I guess the other thing that, like in in the story, you mentioned a bit, and you, and you, you sort of we sort of skirted around a little bit with this idea of you know British wrestling goes through uh, a tough time after you finished up, and like I'm sure if you know if you're listening to this right now, you're probably a British wrestling fan. So, dear listener, you probably know what we're referring to. But in the book, there was this bit where you said, um, "Everybody's welcome until you're not." And I really just wanted to get your thoughts about wrestling fans and the way that they hold wrestlers to seemingly, like I think, a standard that's just not attainable. I compare wrestling and especially British wrestling to any other art form. And it seems like in the wrestling industry, you've got to be bloody the Virgin Mary to win any respect. Like, I'm not trying to push that onto you, but... What are your thoughts about the way that wrestling fans view wrestlers now?
1: Do do you mean for sort of in-ring critique? and?
0: Well, in-ring critique definitely is one, but then also like from a moral standpoint, like do you think that some of the ways that wrestling fans hold wrestlers to a moral standard is also unfair?
1: I, th- I think that one's probably just where the culture is and, and what happens on social media and where things are now. And some people might say that's just being more accountable and, and all that kind of stuff, but it can be problematic because there, there can be a difference between something that's illegal and something that's immoral and then a sort of gray area in between and all that. But since I've left wrestling, to be honest, I, I haven't paid attention to, I, I barely watch it. I, didn't, I don't yeah. follow on social media and after all that, happened and everything I was kind of done with wrestling I was done with even being a part of that I felt solid by it and like you know it was difficult in that world and then yeah I guess part of the enjoyment of being a wrestling fan these days and being a smart fan or whatever you want to call them you know is this hyper granular level of critique of booking decisions of even what wrestlers wear of of spots and sequences, and there's this sort of very sophisticated knowledge of the industry and and what it's like and being a workings and all that kind of stuff, and, and people come over everything with the kind of like exactitude as if they're looking over French literary theory or something. Like, you know, it is very precise. And you know, when, when I was subject to that, it did get under my skin a little bit because I was just like, I'm you know, I've been wrestling like a year or two. I've been, kind of been thrown into this and. And part of my gimmick was to be as basic as fuck. That was literally the gimmick. I was the default wrestler. I was there's stuff I could have done, especially when I was a baby face, but there's more complex sports. There's more, there's things I could have done, but I stripped that down because I feel like to be a good antagonist in today's world of wrestling is you want to be the person who delays gratification. The fans want this, the fans want the cool move and you're the guy stopping that, stopping that, stopping that until then the guy overwhelms you and all that kind of stuff. So you know, I did feel, I suppose, a little bit sorry for myself in some respects, and go, well, actually, you know, I tried really hard there, and that's the best I can do. But on the other hand, they're fans, and they're entitled to their opinion, and they're paying money to come watch shows and all that kind of stuff. And maybe I was too green to be in certain situations, and but that's that's all part of the course. That that's what the wrestling industry is, and. Some of the boys like to be all like, you know, wrestling's for the boys and the fans are kind of just marks or whatever. But it's not. Wrestling is for those people. They, they sustain it. They keep it going. And so some people got what I was trying to do. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. And But that, that's all right, you know.
0: Well, I can say that you, you had big fans and wrestling should be fun, mate. We think that we got it. We loved old school violence. At times, it was very funny. But then at times, it was just badass and cool. Like, we, we <laughs> really enjoyed it. We talk very, very fondly about the Progress Wrestling shows at the Dome at Tufnell Park. And the Freedoms Road shows, it was something different with guys dressed up as rats at the end when the lights go out or Chuck Mambo time-traveling. And then on the other hand, yourself, all, you know, black boots, black knee pads. I think that the chant at the time was player one or something like that, right? And it was just so much different. It was so much fun. So you you definitely won us over, mate, and um, made some fans out of that. And, um, you know, you, you made a fan out of me with the novel. I wanted to ask... I guess kind of about life after wrestling. Just, you know, a little bit before we get out of here. You've been more than generous with your time, by the way. I guess I wanted to ask with the novel and without going into any specifics, did you have to contact anyone from the wrestling industry to be like, hey, I'm writing this or is it enough fiction that it was like, oh, it's okay, like I don't need to reach out to too many people?
1: Yeah, I think what well, has just well. on me is I've been quite negative about my time in pro wrestling, but especially the Dome shows and the Tufnell Park shows, is that the same place? The, the, yeah, the,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: the same, yeah. The other place, what's it called? Garage? Yeah, the Garage. The shows in the Garage and the shows in the Dome, they were my WrestleManias, like I just loved them, and that, yeah. the, the, the crowd was so hot, it was great, you know, and... I loved like some of the smaller shows and some of the holiday camp shows where we just call it on the fly. And it was just really pure kind of pantomime wrestling and just just really enjoyable. So I, I did enjoy a lot of it. And I was proud of, but I had some of the sorts of matches, but just about, but I, I kind of wanted to, when you have aspirations to be a wrestler, you go like, well, I'd love a match like that. I'd love a match like that. And I, I did have one or two of those.
0: Yeah, mate, we love those shows at the Dome and the Garage 100% as well. Like it in a way, British wrestling fans, I'm not going to say that they were necessarily our WrestleMania, but if you were ever there on those Wednesday nights at the Dome, it was so much fun. I guess, like, the second part of the question, was was to do with, did you have to contact anyone else that oh, was like yeah. around at the time to let them know about the book?
1: When I started it, it was just a work of creative nonfiction. It started out as nonfiction. But I, I was writing it for, like, four or five years and over the course of that i just thought like it'd just be a case of just writing what i did but you know maybe that'd work as a memoir but in the grand scheme of things a memoir by some lower mid-card heel in brick rest 10 years ago isn't gonna cut the mustard you know it's not like i'm hulk hogan it's not like i'm chris jericho or something like that so and there was also just some just in terms of the story and, and the plot like what was it about what was it for and I hit a lot of dead ends and a lot of places it didn't really make sense. And then when I started doing it as part of my PhD, my supervisor was like, you know, why did you get into wrestling? I was like, well, this guy paid me. And he's like, yeah, but you, you do that. You stay around for two weeks. Why did you stay? What was it? And, and we got into the deeper story of what that is. And, and it goes back to fathers and sons and it goes to identity. And yeah, in order to really communicate the truth of everything that happened, I had to make it up. Yep. I, had to, I had to create stuff. And over time, the stuff that did happen became less relevant than the things that didn't happen. And the, the things that didn't happen felt more true than the things that did happen in a lot of cases. So there's a great short story by Borges about a distant kingdom where these shit-hot cartographers have kind of gone crazy. And they're just such good mapmakers and they're renowned for their accuracy that they want to create a map that's exactly the same size as the kingdom. And when they do that, they realize it's pointless. Yeah. It's ripped up and and disappears. Because the whole point of a map in order for it to work is to give that perspective. It's to shrink things down into symbols so you get that overall picture. And that's what happened with the book is that there was just too much stuff, too much stuff going on. And I had to sort of compress things, compress characters, compress scenes, compress moments, mix around chronology in order to create a kind of symbolic record of what happened that wasn't the literal record and wasn't the factual record and then had to kind of manufacture some characters and invent them a little bit. So obviously, as is the case with any novel, like there are characters who've got some sort of basis in reality. You know, all Dickens characters, as you mentioned before, but there's somebody who's their progenitor. There's somebody who's a bit like them, but Dickens. And I, I live in Dickens country and it's really funny hanging out around here because you, they're all still here yeah (laughs) you can still see all these dickens characters around here but so so they had a basis but other than the people who are meant to be who they're meant to be like me and my dad and one or two other people most of the others have gone full dungeons and dragons on them they're they're kind of they're not enough of one person to be a person they're all kinds of things you know
0: yeah no mate fair play so i guess finish off like I always love comparing my profession, teaching, to performance. And I often tell the students, I say, mate, Mr. Philp is a very different character to Dom Philp at the cricket club drinking Guinness or even, you know, just right on the mic doing this podcast. You know, we all play characters all the time. And, and, you know, you almost proved it for me in the novel with my new gimmick is Mr. Brown. Um, (laughs) Can you, you know... I guess maybe just, like, tell us a little bit about life now. Like, you've moved on from pro wrestling. Are you still writing? Is it mostly teaching? Tell us about the success story of Wes Brown, more so than Earl Black Jr. Well,
1: yeah, I I sail off into the sunset at the end of my wrestling career and I could finally put wrestling behind me. And I'd seen through the kayfabe and I'd seen through all the bullshit and I'd seen through my dad, but I saw through him, And you get a new relationship you get a true relationship you see all the vulnerabilities and you accept him as 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 a fragile old man who's got some tall tales and not as this sort of godlike figure you know and and then you can become your own man and do things in your own way you know and sometimes make amends for some of the mistakes you've made in the past because you're weak or because you were scared or because you weren't able to be yourself in the way that you wanted to be you know. So the next stop for that was becoming a, you know, I, I, I had um, a daughter on the way and uh, I had a stepson and I was getting married. And then I was becoming a teacher, which is its own sort of kayfabe. Like, this stuff applies everywhere. So when I say kayfabe is a novel about wrestling, but it's not really about wrestling because it is isn't. it isn't, you know. And there's a theorist called Irving Government who wrote about the presentation of self in everyday life. And he talks about the performances that we all take part in. And it's not to say that we're being disingenuous. It's just that we perform for one another. We signal, we do acts. If you go into a hospital, we signify rank through different costumes and different behaviours. And the doctor comes in and the nurses on stage will behave and talk differently to how they do off stage. And there are all, there's an on stage group performance and we have off stage. There's all this kind of staging. and That's even more so now in this world of social media in this world of reality TV, where people are playing versions of themselves and it's not clear where the line is or not. Or even in the kind of post-truth world where somebody can blow up a hospital and nobody knows who's done it. And you just believe, you know, people believe the narrative that they want to believe. And it's hard to just have undisputable facts now, you know. And there's a a sort of kayfabe element to just believing the thing that you feel most invested in. And, and, and the whole thing with Trump as well, like Trump is a kayfabe politician because he can say he wants to build a wall or whatever, and he doesn't matter whether he does or not. It's just the signaling to that. And then people go buy his merch and wear his hat because it's about signaling again in the same way that we wear a macho man hat or we have yeah. all the coded signals to other wrestling fans, you know, and in the classroom, that's pure performance. That's pure k kayfabe, you know, the, the Mr. Brown gimmick. Yeah. but. My experience in secondary education was wild. Teachers is the hardest job in the world. I don't know how you do it. I was burnt out after a year and I ended up going to do a PhD and uh, became an academic instead.
0: Yeah, well, I think maybe one day I might run away and join the circus and try to be a wrestling commentator or something. Who knows? where's like, I-, I cannot thank you enough for your time, brother. Like, uh, I just, you've been way more generous than what we asked for. And like, I've loved chatting to you, mate. Like, firstly, is there anything that you wanted to mention about the novel that you think we missed before I give you a chance to plug it and let us know how to find you?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we've covered... It's it's really good to just speak to somebody who's not necessarily into all these literary, French theory kind of bollocks stuff, but can pick up the book and it affects them. You know? Yeah. They, they feel it and they riff on the ideas. And that's, that's what I wanted.
0: Mate, and I 100% did that. Like, I... Could not recommend it enough if you're a wrestling fan or probably if you're just a man of a certain age. If you are like me, you know, you uh, grew up with any type of pop culture and, you know, you grew up with a dad that was larger than life because I'm a bit like that too. And my dad just owned a chip shop. But um, he was, you know, he's, he's a local legend back in country Australia. So, uh, so many of the themes I related to, we spoke about the idea of probably would be pushing into stress, i say addiction for me, but like definitely substance abuse at times. And I just, I, it was the thing that I loved about it was, it's called breaking kayfabe. And in an industry that you don't know where the line is, it's fake in quotation marks, it's so gritty and real, the novel, and that's what I loved about it, Was So I shouldn't ask two questions at once, but where can we find the book for our listeners and then where can we find you if that's something that you would like?
1: Yeah, the book is published by Blue Moose. You know, If, if you buy it on the publisher's website, that's better for the publisher and small presses and so on, but it is available in all good bookshops and Waterstones and Amazon and those kinds of places as well hardback paperback ebook and i'm on twitter or x or whatever it's called now as wes brown writer and i have a a Substack called in search of strong style
0: wow that's one that i need to go and search out in search of strong style Mate, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so very much. We cannot thank Wes Brown enough here on the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed our chat here, go and grab this novel. and it, it, it really is. It's just fantastic for a wrestling fan or anybody else in your life. Christmas season coming up, might I add. That's about all the time we have here on the Wrestling Should Be Fun podcast. Don't forget to get around us on the socials. Big shout out to our editor, Phil. If you need some editing done, it's Phil Stopford Editor. You can find him on the internet. I'm sure you know how to use it if you found this. But most importantly, thank you very much to you, dear listener. We'll catch you next week. Wes, thanks so much. We'll see you in a bit. Thank you. Cheers. Drink lots of water. Look after you, mate.